0: Book of Revelation, one of the things that I uh, have learned to do, partly because I'm married to Tricia, and um, she's helping me learn to value a wide range of expressions of art that in the past I would not have given much attention to. So I want to introduce you as we go through our series on Revelation to um, some classic works of Christian art. Now, there's some terrible stuff out there, associated with the book of Revelation. So, warning, you know, don't just put in Revelation and hit the Google image search. Um, so, we're going to carefully curate some things. Today, I want to introduce you to one of my favorite artworks from Revelation, painted by an 11-year-old girl. She's no longer 11. Her name was Bailey Jacob. And uh, several years ago, I preached a couple sermons at a church in Alabama. And um, she drew this picture while listening, and then uh, the following week it showed up on the cover of their children's worship bulletin, and someone handed me a copy, and I've kept it ever since. Uh, you may not be able to read it all, so I'll describe it to you. There's a, a sentence up at the top that says, Jesus paints a picture of himself for us so we can keep going, and then on the left-hand side is um, stick figure with a palette of colors in his hand and a paintbrush in the other and an easel and a portrait. Jesus is the artist and Jesus is the one being painted in the portrait. Jesus is painting a picture of himself so that we can see his glory and his beauty. Why? So that we won't give up. And so over on the right hand uh, side is another stick figure saying, I give up. And there's this painting of Jesus hanging on the wall saying, don't give up. Um, Revelation chapter 1 is Jesus painting a picture of himself for us. We're about to hear, it's, it's a word picture painted with words in the colors of the Old Testament and the shapes of symbols that the first hearers who, had, who heard these scriptures read aloud in a worship service on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, the day that we call Sunday, just like we're doing here now, hearing these words read aloud, Jesus painting a picture of himself for us. Why? Well, when I preached this sermon in Alabama lots of years ago, I said, so we won't give up. Today, slightly new, new sermon, new church, new year. Jesus is painting a picture of himself so we won't be afraid. Let's listen to Jesus, paint that picture for us, as Becky reads from Revelation chapter one.
1: Today's scripture is from the book of Revelation chapter one, verses nine through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. and in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment and pray together. (laughs) Lord Jesus, Twenty centuries ago, these words were written down. They were read out loud and heard by gatherings of Christians spread all across the ancient world, spread across the places that now are, are in the country of Turkey, Greece, Rome, Africa, The land that today we would know as Palestine, Israel, Saudi Arabia. And Lord, your people were spreading westward to Spain. This good news about you, this vision of your glory was spreading throughout the whole world. Today we pray that that spread would continue. And that as it has gone wide into many nations, it would today Also, go deep into every heart. Lord, some of us came here today longing to see you. Some of us came here today afraid that we might see you. However we come, would you show us more of yourself, we pray in your name. Amen. Jesus is painting a picture of himself so we won't be afraid. Afraid of what? Remember the context of the book of Revelation. It's hinted at uh, in the beginning as John describes himself, the writer of the book of Revelation, as a brother, a a fellow Christian, somebody who has confessed Jesus as Lord, and therefore as a partner in the tribulation, the, the affliction, the suffering, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And he's on an island called Patmos. He has been sent into exile. Why? Because he was speaking the Word of God and because he was giving testimony about Jesus. So John is experiencing what he's getting other Christians in his day ready to experience and what Jesus is getting the rest of us ready to experience. This kind of sense of uh, living in a society that's pressuring us, pressuring us to compromise. The book of Revelation is written for that reason. It's not to confuse us, it's not to start arguments about how we know exactly when Jesus is returning. The book of Revelation is not given to us to make us afraid. It is given to us to equip us so that we can live out bold faith in Jesus and do that in the midst of a society that's pressuring us to compromise our faith in Him. In a society where Jesus is unfamiliar and strange, even in a society like our own where many people think they know a lot about Jesus, Jesus can really still be unfamiliar and strange. And in that kind of place, we we often pick up on this signal. We talked about it last week, that you have to make a choice. You can't be a good citizen of our world and confess Jesus as Lord. If you want to be a good neighbor, if you want to be a, a, a really functioning part of our society, then you're going to have to cut some corners in your relationship with Jesus because you just can't be both. So we... If you want to be a good citizen, you're going to have to compromise your commitment to Jesus. The book of Revelation is Jesus' way of saying to us, don't be afraid of that pressure. It's real. He felt it. John felt it. The church has been feeling it ever since these words were written. That pressure is real, but we don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to be afraid of the rejection that accompanies it. We don't have to be afraid of whatever loss would accompany that rejection. Jesus is speaking to us, painting a picture of himself so that we won't be afraid. What does it mean to say that Jesus is painting a picture of himself? Go back to chapter One verse 1 of this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. In other words, Jesus is the one doing the revealing. God has given him a message, and Jesus is faithfully imparting that to us. These images we're about to walk through are not the church's ideas of what Jesus is like. These images we're going to walk through are are not John's ideas of what Jesus is like. They became John's ideas and the church's ideas because they were first Jesus' own ideas of what he is like. And he's the one with the brush in his hand, painting, using the colors of the Old Testament, and telling us through symbols and word pictures what he is like. Now, that gets us to a really important interpretive principle when it comes to the book of Revelation. We mentioned it last week, but we didn't spend much time on it. We're going to unpack it a little more today. Revelation is a book that uses detailed descriptions of symbols that represent realities. So we're about to walk through some detailed descriptions of symbols, and those symbols represent real things. But if you come to the book of Revelation and you think that all of its descriptions are direct descriptions of reality, you're going to get in some trouble. Jesus is not really walking around some heavenly temple that's big enough to hold seven stars in it that have been somehow converted into lampstands with a robe and a sash on. We're not meant to make that assumption as we read these images. Now, those are powerful symbols, and they stand for something real, and we'll say what that is in just a moment. One of the ways we know, though, that this book is full of symbols is that occasionally it stops and explains the symbols to us. And so that was the end of the Scripture reading. As for the mystery of the seven stars, let me tell you, that's a symbol, and here's what that symbol represents. As for the seven lampstands, that's a symbol, and here's what it represents. So don't make the move that goes straight from description to reality. Ask what the symbol, what symbol is being described, and then we'll ask what reality does that symbol represent. Now, that's also not a license to just kind of ignore everything revelation, and therefore the whole New Testament, and while we're at it, the whole Bible, let's just ignore it because it's all symbolic. It's all, you know, somehow not literal, therefore we don't have to mess with it. No, these symbols represent realities. We have to deal with those realities. But we don't want to make the mistake of mishandling the symbol. So imagine for a moment uh, a picture of the United States flag and somebody making this kind of mistake. They would say, oh, 50 stars. Therefore, and they're all exactly the same shape and size. Therefore, the United States has 50 states and they're all exactly the same shape and size. No, they're not. No. (laughs) It would be a mistake. You're misunderstanding the the symbol. It does represent a reality. There really are 50 states. But it doesn't represent every every detail of the reality doesn't correspond to the symbol. And so as we work our way through Revelation, we're going to come back again and again and again to that principle. Let's do that now for these symbols that Jesus uses to describe himself. Many of them come from the book of Daniel. If you wanted to read Daniel chapter 7, a couple of key verses there that mention the Son of Man. And um, you would hear this kind of language used to describe the the Son of Man. The Son of Man is is approaching the the throne of, of God, the Father, And and that father has clothing as white as snow, and the hair of his head is like pure wool. Hmm, white hair, like pure wool. And then we come later to a description of the Son of Man Himself, this, this ruler and king figure. And verse 14 of Daniel 7 says, To Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him, it's an everlasting dominion that won't pass away, his kingdom, one that won't be destroyed. So we read that Old Testament text and we know this, this is a, these are symbols depicting someone who is a king. Well, that's not all. We're going to start with this. Jesus is a priest. He's a priest who has infinite care for the flourishing of his church. How do we know that? Well, verses 12 and 13 describe Jesus as one who walks among seven golden lampstands. There are several several Old Testament passages that talk about um, the temple having golden lampstands in it. The priests walk among those lampstands. And then there are passages in the Old Testament that use that as a symbol for the people of God, Israel. So here is Jesus walking among the seven lampstands and What do they represent? Well, if we didn't know, it decodes the symbol for us right at the end of the chapter. Those are the seven churches. We said last week that even the number seven is symbolic of completeness or wholeness. So Jesus has infinite uh, care for the whole church, for the complete gathering of his people across this planet and across all time in every place and in every century. Jesus is a priest who walks among the churches. He wants to know what's going on among his people. He wants to know how we're hurting. He wants to know where we need strengthening. He wants to know what we need, and he will provide it because he's that kind of priest. Another symbol that tells us he's a priest is in verse 13, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The Old Testament says that's how priests in the temple dressed. Is Jesus really an Old Testament priest wearing exactly the same kind of clothing right now at this moment that Old Testament priests did? No. This is a description of a symbol. And the symbol represents a reality. And the reality is Jesus' infinite care for the flourishing of his people and his church in all times and places. Jesus is that kind of priest with infinite care, and he's a king with infinite wisdom and power to accomplish in this world what he desires. Have you seen that he's a priest? See a king? Well, we know that uh, verse 13 says he's one like a son of man. That's picking up that language from Daniel chapter 7. A king whose, whose rule will never come to an end, and it will gather people from every nation to serve him the other aspects of this imagery jesus is painting this picture right and he's painting himself as a king who has power so and he has wisdom verse 14 the hairs of his head were white like wool as white as snow in the scriptures white hair is a symbol of the wisdom that usually comes with age. Well if you were infinitely old, <laughs> right? If if you if you have existed forever, as Jesus describes himself as the one who was and the one who is and the one who is coming, the one who will be, he has all wisdom. When I thought Daniel chapter 7 said it was God the Father who had that wisdom. Jesus is painting himself in the colors of God. He is saying, "I, I am divine. I am God who has come in human flesh. And I have infinite wisdom. And I have infinite power. Verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze. Now, to you and me, that may sound like, oh, highly polished metal um, for decoration. When we think of polishing metal, it's usually to make something shiny and pretty. Think for a moment like someone who lives in the ancient world. Bronze is, it's how you make weapons. It's how you make the tools that, that ensure survival in a farming economy or in a military culture. So burnished bronze is, is forged and purified, and it's strong, and his feet are like that. Description of a symbol, right? Don't picture Jesus wearing, you know, bronze chacos or something, right? <laughs> um, it's saying That he can walk where he wants. He can go where he wants. He can do what he wants. He can accomplish all that he wants with strength and power and wisdom. Jesus is this king with infinite power and wisdom. And when he speaks, his voice is like the roar of many waters. He can issue commands that have to be obeyed. He can shape the will of the world to Himself. Jesus is painting this picture of himself as that kind of priest and that kind of king. And also as a judge. A judge who has absolute purity and integrity within himself. Verse 14 says that he has eyes like a flame of fire. There is no dark place that can hide from the gaze of Jesus. There's no darkness in him, and there's no, there's no dark secret that we can keep that he won't know. There's no point in trying to pretend before him, because he can see through everything we try to put out. Defenses and lies and rationalization. Yeah, I've done some bad stuff, but it really wasn't that bad you think I'm bad, you ought to see my brother. Okay, I'm an only child, so I didn't just throw anybody real under the bus there. Right? Jesus is incredibly pure, and he has integrity. Verse 16 says that from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, and his face is like the sun shining in full strength. He's absolutely pure, radiant light emanating from him. And he has the ability to, um, to separate truth from falsehood, that sort of sharp, two edged sword image, the ability to, to cut through all that's false. He's that kind of judge. He has that kind of purity and integrity in himself, and he's calling his church to reflect that kind of purity and integrity in the world as we follow him. So far, this has been a little bit like dissecting a love letter, right? If someone writes a love letter to you, you're not meant to examine the grammar of it. You're not meant to... Oh, notice notice how that semicolon was used there to great effect. You're supposed to read it and just be kind of stunned by the object of your love. And that's exactly how this vision of Jesus works. It's hard to reflect this in an English translation because we normally don't speak this way. If you read an English translation of this vision, it's broken down into nice, tidy sentences with periods. But if you read this in the original language, there are no periods. It's all just ands. And, and you, you get this sense of breathlessness. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And he was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And, 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 and. And, and I get to the end, and I'm just kind of breathless in awe. And I think there's no one else I would want ruling this world than someone like this, someone this pure. There's no one else I would want to have this kind of power except for someone who has also this kind of wisdom. There is no one else I would want to be able to see the deepest, darkest secrets of my soul than somebody who was a priest walking among his people and saying, what can I do to strengthen and encourage you this sense of breathlessness well it's it's actually reflected in the text isn't it verse 17 when i saw him i fell at his feet as though dead i'm just overwhelmed with the beauty and the glory and the majesty of jesus One of the reasons I'm overwhelmed is because he knows what it's like to suffer in this world too. Verse 18, I am the living one. I died. Now I'm alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's the Greek word for hell. Whatever your culture is, whether you came up through Greek pagan mythology or whether you came up reading the Old Testament and and knowing God as an Israelite in the ancient world, I've got the keys. I know what it is to die, and I know what it is to live again. And Jesus, we are in awe of you. That awe is meant to lead us to a place where we don't have to be afraid. Jesus is painting this picture of himself so that we won't be afraid. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not. You don't have to be afraid. The next time... We hear Jesus say, don't be afraid, is in chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer, Jesus says to the church at Smyrna. Some of you are going to be put in prison. You're going to be tested. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Don't be afraid Jesus says, I know that suffering is coming. If you confess me as Lord, then at some point, that will bring hardship into your life. At some point, life will be harder for you because you chose to love me than it would have been if you ignored me. At least in the short run, in the long run. I have died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. There is life forever. But in the short term, it will get harder for you because you love and trust me. But remember, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Fear not. I am the first and the last. I was there before the thing you're afraid of. I will be, the, be there after the thing that you're afraid of. Can I talk for a few minutes about how fear works in churches? We could talk about how fear works in our lives individually. But for today, I'd like to talk about how fear works in us together as groups in churches. Churches are full of groups that are are afraid of losing something really important. And uh, the groups kind of form camps. And they they throw up a camp near the wall. Let's think of the church as a, a city or a village with a wall around it. And you guard the wall, you're most afraid of losing. You guard the wall. If this wall gets torn down, the whole church is gonna be destroyed. So I'm gonna go camp out next to the wall That I'm most afraid of losing because that's the thing that's going to destroy the church. And some of us, you know, we camp over next to the truth wall. Truth, biblical doctrine, what biblical beliefs and values that reflect our Christian commitment. If that ever gets eroded, the whole church will get destroyed. So let's camp out there and guard that truth wall. And some people are going like, no, let's guard the holiness wall. There's another wall surrounding this church, holiness practices and disciplines and lifestyle commitments. You guys over there with the truth wall, you're all about beliefs and values. I'm talking about action. How we live, what we do. The holiness wall. If that wall comes down, the whole church is going to be destroyed. Let's camp out there and make sure that one never gets destroyed. <clears throat> what about the grace wall? I hung out with some of those holiness people. They're a bunch of legalists. What's really going to destroy this church is legalism. When people forget that salvation is by grace, that our acceptance from God the Father comes because of what Jesus did and not because of anything we did, if we ever lose grip on that, the whole church is going to be destroyed. We'll become just another religion of human performance. So let's... Throw our tent over there and camp out next to that wall. (laughs) And then there are people saying, no, 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 no. There's a compassion wall. You grace people, you talk a good talk, but you're still interested in, in sort of the doctrine of justification by faith through grace. You're still interested in belief. Over here by the compassion wall, we're interested in practice. Are we turning mercy to suffering people into action? Most churches, most churches are big enough that all four camps are represented. What happens when somebody says, attack, we're under attack? All right, the fear response starts to happen. And we all rush toward the wall where we think the greatest risk is. We're under attack. What's the greatest threat to the church? What's the thing that's going to destroy us? Doctrinal compromise. If we, if we stop believing in the truth of the Bible. Ah, no, no, no. It's actually not that. It's actually loss of distinctive Christian moral practices that's what's going to destroy us. we got to guard that wall. No, no, no. Forget it. It's, remember, it's the legalism thing. we got to guard that wall. No, no. The thing that's going to destroy the church is dead orthodoxy. People who have truth without compassion will be the end of us. Do you hear any, uh, say, generational tensions at work in all of this? Like, do you think people who are 55 are afraid of the same thing as people who are 25 no no the denomination that we're a part of was born in a particular context in the 1970s by the truth camp and a few people in the holiness camp but our church has been around long enough that in the mid-90s there was this kind of grace awakening throughout the United States. There's a pretty big grace camp in our churches now. And I would bet you money that nearly everybody who's under the age of 35 is way more concerned about that compassion wall than people who are over that, that age. So we get afraid of different things, and we run different ways when someone says, attack! And then, a, then something worse happens. If somebody yells attack and you don't run to my wall, I'm now not only afraid of the attack, I'm afraid of you. The truth wall is the one we have to guard and protect. Why are you running over to the compassion wall? I have to be afraid that you don't really value truth at all. By the way, some of you have said, could you explain to me what happened to General Assembly and the PCA this summer? I am explaining it to you right now. (laughs) Right? The truth wall is under attack and you're over here talking about compassion and justice towards sufferers. I'm now afraid of you. Just as I'm afraid of whatever's attacking the wall from the outside, I'm afraid of you inside the church and it works both ways, right? You're over there shoring up the truth wall when the people I know who don't love Jesus, their biggest critique of the church is that we have no compassion, no mercy for suffering people, no kindness. So now I'm afraid of you. You can't see that the real battle is over here. And so this fear dynamic begins to destroy the church from outside and from within. And can you listen with me to Jesus for a moment and what he says? He says, churches in Revelation, churches throughout Asia Minor, churches in these seven cities, my church, listen, I know you are under attack. I know that some of you are about to be imprisoned. I know that some of you may be put to death. I know that you are afraid. Do not be afraid. I am the first, and I am the last. And in the moment of greatest fear, where do I, Jesus, want you to look? I want you to look at me. I don't want you to look at the wall that you're afraid is about to tumble down. I don't want you to look at the opponents on the other side of the wall. I don't want you to look at other people in the church and be afraid of them. I want you to look at me, so let me paint a picture of glory that takes your breath away so that you can't take your eyes off of me. I am drop dead glorious, Jesus says. If you could see my glory, it would overwhelm you and you would fall on the ground. And I would ask you, how big is a star? How big and strong and powerful would you have to be to hold a star in your right hand? Hold on to that question for a minute and let's read the text one more time. It says that Jesus holds in his right hand, verse 16, seven stars. How big and strong and wise and powerful would you have to be to hold in your right hand seven stars? And if ever there was an argument for reading the Bible carefully and paying attention to details, this is one. Jesus says, I hold in my right hand seven stars. And then he says, verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. If the Jesus who can hold seven stars in his right hand, wait a minute, I thought you said it was a symbol. Yeah, but it's a very powerful symbol, isn't it? If if the Jesus who has all of that power and that wisdom and that glory If the Jesus who is that indestructible, that he can paint a picture of himself in which he's holding all the blazing infernos of nuclear fission and fusion in his right hand, and he turns that right hand toward us, and he says, I want to comfort you, and I want to strengthen you, and I want you to have more courage. I will use all that power and all that wisdom to give you more truth and more holiness and more compassion and more grace than you could ever dream of. In fact, I will give you so much of the thing you want that you'll get sick of it. (laughs) You think you love truth? Jesus loves truth more than you do. You think you love compassion? He's gonna demand more compassion of you than you signed up for. You think you love grace? He starts parading in people you're like, Jesus, I meant to forgive people, but not people like that. Do not be afraid. Turn to me. That same hand that is so big and so powerful reaches out to you today and says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid.